Hi everyone and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. I started this podcast for a very simple reason. You can find podcasts on pretty much any topic, but I wasn't aware of any that were focused on public service leaders. So rather than wait for somebody else to do it, I decided to give it a try. I wanted to give public service leaders a platform to tell their stories, to talk about the reforms and innovations they put in place, and to share lessons in leadership. I think this will be particularly interesting for current and future public service leaders, but a lot of the lessons are more broadly applicable. So I hope you enjoy it, and please remember to register on the website to never miss a future episode. This episode is with Scott Dara. Scott is the chief executive of Social Adventures, which is a Salford-based social enterprise that specializes in public health. Scott's one of life's truly inspirational people, and I've known him for about 10 years now. And every time we meet, I leave with a new list of exciting ideas. Scott was one of the pioneers of the public service mutual movement, which started under the last Labour government and continued under the coalition government, but it was mainly about services moving from within the public sector out into a social enterprise mutual model. As well as talking about the benefits of delivering services through this type of model, we talk about the social adventures journey over the 10 years in which it's been in existence, how it's grown, expanded and diversified. We talk about the role of mutuals and social enterprises, both in delivering public services, but also their place in the wider economy, which in Greater Manchester is particularly important as there is a lot of enthusiasm for this type of organisation from the mayor downwards. And in one of the key parts of our discussion, we talk about the necessity for services and organisations to have the freedom to innovate and to make mistakes and to learn from those mistakes. It's a really enlightening and fascinating discussion, so I hope you enjoy it. Great to see you, Scott. Really appreciate you taking the time to have a talk with me. We've obviously known each other for, I think, maybe 10 years now. But for those who don't know you, do you want to just say a little bit about who you are? Yes, certainly. Yeah, I'm Scott Darry. I'm the Chief Executive Social Adventures. Uh, I'm also the Chair over at Bevan Healthcare, um, which I'll tell you more about later on in the interview. Uh, and I'm lucky enough to be on the Social Enterprise Advisory Group for GM, uh, which is a panel that Andy Burnham set up uh, about 12 months ago now. Great. And Social Adventures, what sort of organisation is that, just so, so people know? Yeah, so Social Adventures spun out of uh, Salford Primary Care Trust in 2011. What does that mean for people who so, might not? So basically we were part of the NHS uh, up until 2011 and there was some legislation back in the uh, kind of late, uh, sorry, the yeah, late 2000s that allowed organisations to spin out. Uh, which meant that they were they were able to take the services out of the public sector and create social enterprises to deliver them in a different format. So it was part of a, a big part of the transforming community services policies that the government had uh, about 10 years ago. Yeah. And those those types of organisations are sometimes referred to as public service mutuals. So I, I want to just go back those 10 years or so to think about that a little bit. So when... As you said, there was an NHS reorganisation, another one, a number of uh, reorganisations ago under the last Labour government. I think it started around 2007 when, as you say, primary care trusts were 
thinking about separating their commissioning functions from provider functions. And there was also the launch of something called the Social Enterprise Investment Fund, which was a Department for Health fund. So you were involved right back at the start of that. Can can you tell us just a little bit about how it all started and what your role in it was? It seems like a different lifetime ago now, doesn't it, when you yeah. think back that long. But yeah, I mean, it is actually 10 years in April uh, that, that we span out. So uh, it's quite a quite a poignant time really to reflect on, on on the last decade and yeah back in 2000 back in 2010 you know we had you know a change in government we were looking uh, at quite a lot of um, reform within the public sector and in terms of the NHS stuff that were, was previously within the primary care trust was being moved out and we had an option to be moved into the local authority or into the acute trust um, for our services which are public health, learning disabilities and mental health services. And we made a choice as a staff team that actually that didn't really fit with the ethos that we were trying to achieve within uh, the services that we were delivering. We felt that there was an opportunity to be more innovative uh, for us to bring in new, new types of money to deliver different types of service to, to actually change the way that we were delivering the services. And also we wanted to um, we wanted to be really close to the to the issues that people were facing and being able to respond really quickly. Um, because, you know, being part of the public sector, it's a great ethos. We really enjoyed being a, you know, a staff team within the NHS, but we, the, it was very difficult sometimes to be very dynamic and we were quite a dynamic group of staff. So we, we were lucky enough to be one of the first wave of, uh, of, of, of organizations that were given the opportunity through the right to request, uh, kind of program to actually put in a, a business case, uh, to the NHS to actually take the services out and create a social enterprise. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so it's been, it's been quite a you know challenging ten years, but looking back on it, you know certainly something that I'm very proud of. So it's a really really big decision there to take a service from the public sector into something that some might consider privatisation. How, how did your staff feel, and is it privatisation? Well, you know there was there was often a, um, you know a comment about privatisation by the back door. I mean, interestingly, I worked in the NHS for many years and there was lots of privatisation by the front door. So, uh, you know, by the back door <laughs> wasn't necessarily a problem. I mean, it, you know, for me, you know, there's three kind of key, key kind of characteristics, I guess, of organisations that have come out of the public sector that are now public service mutuals. They have a very strong social purpose. They are, they have an asset lock on them so that, you know, if we decide to wind up our organisation, we can't all, all kind of disappear. So they came in Ireland with the money. Uh, and, you know, the final thing is that the money that we make is all reinvested back into the services that we deliver. So, you know, we, we've been lucky enough to grow by 30% year on year since we spun out of the NHS. And that's given us a really solid kind of foundation to tackle the social issues that we're trying to uh, tackle within yeah. the communities. So just so people are really clear, what sort of organisation is Social Adventures? Who Who owns it? So, yeah, so we're, we are a mutual. So we are actually a bit... You know, we have a type of mutual. So we're a community benefit society. So we're co-owned by staff. So staff own 50% of the organisation. And then we have local people that own the other 50%. So it's a very democratic structure. We have staff representation on the board. We, you know, staff can vote on key decisions at our AGM. You know, we're not share, you know, we don't have shareholders in the traditional sense of shareholding. We have stakeholders. But they have a, a strong voice. And, you know, I was listening to the interview that you did with um, Adi uh, on the previous uh, Radical Reformers. And the concept of actually co-designing and co-producing things with local people is really key to the way that we're 
the, the, the way that we're set up, you know, and bringing kind of local people into uh, into decision making was really important for us, and we wanted to be accountable uh, to local people and also to staff, you know, and that that was a way in which we could give staff greater autonomy to do things, but also uh, to make sure that we were being held to account as an organisation. Okay, so w- when you make decisions, you know, big decisions. Local people and the staff team have, have an input into that. Yeah, so so key decisions about yeah. So for instance, like when we before just before uh, COVID hit, we wrote a business plan and we did a lot of consultation. Uh, interestingly, that you know we launched it on the first of January of two thousand and twenty. By the first of March two thousand and twenty, it was uh, if the toilet paper had run out, it would be it would have come in handy. Put it that way. Uh, so uh, it was <laughs> you might want to edit that out um it was you know so basically um you know we we you know we involve the staff and local people in our business planning um and look at look at sharing that that plan with people and getting them to input in it in, in a way that probably when we were part of the public sector we wouldn't have to do we, we may have done it but we we also may not have done it so i think it it creates a different relationship between the staff and the organisation, but also local people who use the services and the organisation as well. No, it sounds like you hit that uh, really positive middle ground between the public sector and traditional outsourcing and privatisation, you know, where you've got a really strong public service ethos, but yet I think, as you're saying, that really strong commercial discipline and entrepreneurialism i'll come on to talk about what's how you've grown over the years but before i do there's just another couple of points i'd like to ask you about how have commissioners responded to this new type of organization i mean nationally um i mean locally and nationally you know they've been very i think commissioners have been widely supportive of, of 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 the move um i mean it's interesting you know over the last 10 years the relationship with our parent organisation has changed. It's changed. You know, it was the PCT. Now it's the CCG. Very shortly, uh, it will be the, the ICP. Um, so it's been really interesting that, you know, we've probably been more stable in terms of our kind of uh, kind of setup than, than our parent organisation. That, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> when, yeah. When you reflect on it. Um, but the relationship with the commissioners has always been really strong, and I mean, e- even more strong during the COVID crisis that we've just gone through, you know, going through, still going through. But um, you know, I think I think that the the commissioners have been really supportive of the model, and they've seen the value in the the fact that we've been able to do things differently. They get they feel you know from the from the feedback that we've had that they get a, a, a big bang from the book from having you know an organisation that is able to be very dynamic and able to respond very quickly to to issues that are going going on, and we've we've definitely seen that in the COVID response, but also before that. And I think nationally, you know, if you look at the, I think you know the last I don't know what the count is these days, Andrew, but it was about 120, wasn't it, before COVID? Maybe, maybe slightly more, slightly less. But the majority of them, you know, there's there's been a high level of um, you know kind of uh, resilience within the sector, and the, and the, and they have kind of continued to deliver great services throughout that 10 year period and they've sustained themselves and grown. I think the, the last research was about 10% growth year on year. And, and to have part of the public sector doing that, but also delivering great services and reinvesting the money back into the service delivery is great to see. One of the frustrations for me when I was a project director within public health in, in Salford was, you know, the services that we would run, we'd do it in a very entrepreneurial way. We tried to 
you know, deliver great services and great value. And then at the end of the year, if we had an underspend, that would go off into another department. And, you know, um, it was often district nursing. It kind of you know, go into the district nursing budget to support them, which is well, no, no problem with district nurses. But um, but the, the fact is it was really frustrating to see the kind of the things that we were doing to be innovative and entrepreneurial we, wasn't necessarily being locked into what we were, we were doing uh, as, a, as a service. So, you know, that, that's been something good to see. And you can you can see that over the last 10 years, how the organisations on the ground have been able to progress and, uh, and deliver things in a different way. Yeah. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about the journey of social adventures over those 10 years and uh, specifically how you've evolved, uh, diversified, um, but if you could just start just by being really clear about what services you started delivering, you summarised it earlier, but just so everyone's very clear about what's, what is at the heart of social adventures. Yeah, so we were part of what was the public health unit within uh, sort of PCT. So we were delivering healthy living centres uh, and we were doing some social prescribing services when social prescribing wasn't as, uh, as popular as, as, as it is now. Uh, but we, we actually got a, a grant from the DH um, to actually do some pilot work around social prescribing, um, and we were doing we were delivering some uh, mental health services through things like horticulture and green care, uh, and we were doing some learning disability services through the personalisation agenda. When the, the uh, Transformed Community Services policy came out, it was very clear that some of these things didn't fit within the kind of plan to actually reform uh, and, and go into local authority or into the into the to the NHS and we started off with a handful of staff I could probably count them all on my hands um, and you know over the years we've kind of we started off with those core services and then we we won a number of other services we won a number of other contracts with the local authority particularly uh, when we spun out so and then we, like well, what, what what sort of services would those have been so so the the original kind of pilot social prescribing service that got scaled to the across the whole of Salford so that became a, a quite a large piece of work. And we were commissioned to do that, and we're still commissioned to do it in a different, in a different guise now. Um, there was a mental health contract that was commissioned out. We, we won that. Um, and then those, those two kind of commissioning activities gave us the opportunity then to, to start thinking about where we wanted to invest some of our surpluses that we were making. And one of the things that we were really passionate about was working with families. Uh, and we felt that the best way to do that was through early years. Uh, we actually acquired two private sector day nurseries, so we raised some sort of social investment and we raised some uh, commercial investment and we went out and bought two day nurseries and then from there that, that 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 was the kind of that was probably years one to five and that gave us a really good platform so we went from a handful of staff probably to 50 staff within the first um, five years and we're up to about 80 staff now so uh, we, we, we brought another two children's day nurseries online we opened a community gym we bought a community garden centre where we put a mental health contract we had a cafe. We've recently turned that into a supermarket. Uh, so we've actually got a food project and, and, and supermarket that we're running for local people where people can volunteer and, and get, get reductions on their, on their shopping. So we came up with a number of, and then we rent out a number of spaces to, to other organizations and, and, and manage that space as well. So we've been able to diversify in, in quite an interesting way. And now about 50% of our income is commissioned. I'd probably say slightly more of it now is it is it's probably about 45 percent, 55 percent actually earned income. So we've actually probably slipped across into more earned income than we have got commissioned income. That, that's really interesting. So when you think of an organisation like yours taking on a garden centre, nurseries, a gym, 
what are you doing with those to run them differently than they might have previously been run to have that wider social impact? Because I know that's what your organisation is all about. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things that we were doing a couple of years before we bought the Children's Day uh, services was we're, we're doing a lot of uh, employability work with people, trying to get them back into employment. One of the biggest barriers to employment was actually childcare. So unless you sorted out the demand around childcare, you were never going to get people back into employment. So we kind of linked, linked those two things together. And then from that, we started an apprentice academy. So getting people who were unemployed, who were mums actually working in our day, day nurseries as apprentices. And it's those kind of, it's the synergy and the link between the, 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 the businesses and the services. So at the same time as actually generating an income, it's actually also hitting our targets for our commissioners because it's, we're, we're providing employment opportunities, you know, um, food poverty, you know, we've done a lot of work recently around food poverty, especially with the COVID uh, issues and linking the, the, the garden centre, for instance, where we've done a lot of horticulture where people with mental health issues produce, uh, produce, you know, edible uh, produce for people you've visited. The garden centre. See, I think we sent you on with a chili plant at one point. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, um, yeah. So I think you know those kind of opportunities to produce the food and then use that within the food project has been really important. So actually, it's really fascinating. Actually, so you've had a a really interesting journey. So you started off with social adventures that that was commissioned to deliver a service by the public sector. And that's where where you started. But at the same time, you had this vision for an organization that was going to pursue its purpose, uh, not just relying on on commission contracts. So you've got all these other things which you're doing, which the public sector commissioners haven't asked you to do necessarily. This is stuff that you and your team being really embedded with it within communities that you serve and look after have decided are really good things to do. And that, that to me just feels really powerful and um, of huge benefit to everybody, including public sector commissioners. Yeah, I mean, a couple of years ago, we were actually able to, this was pre-COVID, we actually gave our commissioners some money back. Um, oh, I've never heard of that. Which was, which was quite a, um, was a really, you know, interesting um, kind of conversation with them because, you know, uh, we put the mental health projects at the garden centre and it was, you know, we're doing really well. We've got a forest school uh, there for kids as well. Uh, and that was doing really well. We actually said to the commissioners, look, we can actually, we can actually help you here and fund some of this. And more recently, we've actually done a project with, uh, there's a living well project, which is a mental health. It's the Lambeth model, which has been developed in Lambeth, but they brought it to Salford around mental health delivery. So it's working with uh, mental health patients that are between primary care and secondary care that often slip through the net. And we were able to actually fund part of that work because of our surpluses. And having those conversations with commissioners has been quite um, quite eye-opening, really, you know, for, for both us and for commissioners to actually sit down and say, look, you know, we can actually help you here with some of your challenges because they only had a very small budget around being able to set that, that up. I think it was only around £70,000 and we were able to give them £10,000 to actually help them get that project off the ground. And so we've been able to actually help the public sector to innovate um, in a way that maybe they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And I think that's something that really changes the relationship with your commissioner when you understand that the fact that the commissioners haven't got this bottomless pot of money uh, to kind of fall back on. Uh, yeah. you know, and one of the things that they really struggle with is the innovation aspect of it. And that's where we can really help them. Uh, we can be in a, a hotbed for innovation and we can also co-fund that 
and actually fuel that with, with some of our surpluses. And I think that's something that commissioners have really kind of um, embraced. Um, so for listeners who want to find out more, socialadventures.org.uk is the website and uh, it's, it's a really good, easily accessible website, which will get into a bit more detail on all of those different services that Scott has talked about there. I, I have to ask you about the COVID-19 response now, as that's the main thing we're all dealing with. So you've been leading a public health social enterprise through this. And as you mentioned earlier, you also you're also the chair of, of another. So what has that been like over the past year nearly now? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's been tough for everyone. I don't think there's, there's, there's anyone that's been, that's been not found the last 10 years, uh, sorry, 10, 10, 10 years, uh, 12 months, um, uh, stressful. It's, it's been a really stressful, um, year for everyone. But, uh, what, what's been, re- what's been really good, I think, is, is how both Bevan and Social Adventures have been able to adapt to, to. And, and just so, so people know, Bevan, what sort of services does Bevan deliver? So Bevan, they spun out at the same time with Social Adventures uh, over in Bradford. Um, they started off doing an inclusion health, which is primary care for people who are homeless and refugees and asylum seekers. They've done really well as well. They've grown significantly over the last decade, now delivering services in Leeds and in Hull as well, which yeah. is great. Yeah. So they've kind of spread out across the whole of the kind of uh, Yorkshire and Humberside kind of area. Um so yeah, I mean, what's been, I mean, we were discussing this yesterday at Bevan, um, at that board meeting, just about how we've been able to put, put people at the core of the service rather than, rather than people adapting around what we're delivering, we've been able to adapt the services around the individual. So at Social Adventures, you know, we worked in partnership with another public service mutual soccer primary care together and we actually opened within 48 hours, I think it was, uh, the first, uh, COVID triage, uh, centre within Greater Manchester. Which was, which is quite an interesting, uh, 20, uh, 48 hours. It was like the start of Contagion. I don't know if you've seen the film Contagion. We're all yeah. in hazmat, hazmat suits going into work and, uh, getting everything ready for that. So that was quite an interesting, um, 48 hours. But we managed to get that up and running really quickly. And obviously then we could start kind of triaging patients. And, and interestingly, that's been a, an amazing kind of link up with, I think partnership working through COVID has been really something that I've really seen work really well, both with the public sector, but on the ground. Uh, at the grassroots on, on the ground within communities uh, and that's been great because as people were coming in and having to self-isolate we were providing food parcels to them and we were also feeding the NHS staff that were working in the COVID triage centres and in, in 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 the Nightingale Hospital so at one point we were doing a thousand meals a day um, for local uh, frontline staff because they couldn't go out of the buildings and also then you, have, you haven't mentioned your cafe yeah, the cafe, yeah. Yeah. So the cafe was kind of redeployed into into food production. It was it became a you know a volunteer project. We had I think at one point about sixty volunteers working with us and you know just producing food. It was it was a military operation. In fact, actually, we actually had one of the, the guys who came in to help us uh, used to be in the catering corps of the South African Army, and it was literally like a military operation. It was very very uh, slick for the operation, and we managed to to do that um and that that cafe is in your so social adventures operates from a main hub yes yeah so within that we've we've taken some of the space and made that into a cafe obviously cafes were hammered with covid because obviously that didn't work so it was redeployed into food production for nhs staff and and for people who self-isolate more recently we've actually completely changed it and you'll see on the website 
that it's now a, a supermarket. So we've we've actually really gone down the food poverty route and we're working with Fair Share, redistributing food into the community. Uh, I'm actually working down there this afternoon, helping out with the food parcels, giving out that to the local back into the community. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, um, and yeah, it, it sells kind of really good, you know, produce for people that can come in and buy it. If you want a, you know, loaf of bread or a bottle of milk, they can do that as well. But it's also providing this hub for food poverty and, and, a, and a community larder uh, for, the, for the local uh, local uh, population, which is great. So that's good. So we're doing that. I think other things that we found that, that changed was, you know, our childcare settings, they, you know, one of our settings was open all the way through. We were working we actually did a seven-day-a-week uh, nursery operation for, uh, for for frontline staff because we were right near a, a major hospital. So we had, you know, we were doing eight while eight uh, childcare, which is was really really tough for the, the frontline staff there, and we were working all weekend eight while eight as well. So we really adapted to the kind of uh, the needs with COVID over at Bevan. I mean, Bevan have done an amazing job at vaccinating uh, people who are out in the community but very vulnerable and uh, you know very unlikely to go into a, a hospital to get vaccinated um we've been able to put you know homeless people in up in hotels to actually be able to get them off the street so we've been able to work with them and vaccinate them and actually help help with getting them you know medical care that they've probably not had for for years uh, so that's been amazing to see as well and especially over the christmas period the the work that they did was just you know herculean it was amazing uh so yeah Uh, So, Scott, how has Social Adventures as an independent social enterprise mutual worked with the formal public sector, so the NHS, councils, GPs, etc., during the COVID crisis? I think it's been been really interesting with the COVID crisis about um, how the voluntary community and social enterprise sectors have been at the core of the COVID response. I mean, we've had been on a weekly call with 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 colleagues in the local authority, with councillors, with with commissioners, looking at how we were going to uh, respond to the COVID crisis uh, collectively. And I think that's been you know really good to see. And I hope that's that you know there's some lessons uh, learned at the end of this this period, and we don't throw the baby back out with the bathwater. We keep some of that really yeah. strong interface between the public sector and uh, the grassroots organisations on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's absolutely right. You, you referenced the interview with Ade from Bromley in one of the previous Radical Reformers podcasts, and there are chief execs of councils in particular all over the country who are very anxious to lock in a lot of this engagement that they've had with communities, and that's individuals and organisations, and to not lose that, and to yeah. try, you know, because a lot of places have felt that they've made at the start of the lockdown, three years worth of progress within three months, just in terms of how they they connected and, and that type of thing. I mean, is there something about Greater Manchester which has made this easier? So, you know, GM has long been a hotspot for social enterprises and mutuals. You know, why why is that? And what does the future for your type of organisation look like in Greater Manchester? Because most of the people listening to this will be aware of the new NHS white paper and that does on the face of it feel like it wants to aggregate things to quite a large scale so how do you think all this will play out you know particularly in, in a greater manchester context so taking the first question about why i think greater manchester is, is is a bit of a hotbed for this stuff i think you know it has got a long tradition it's it's 
it, it's named itself as the home of the cooperative movement. I'm not sure, you know, I'm sure other people would argue that there's been cooperatives going on in other areas before that. But Rochdale is the Rochdale you know, pioneers, yeah, pioneers has, has, has always been kind of referenced as the as the birthplace. And you've got the Co-op UK based in Greater Manchester. You've got a lot of cooperative councils who, you know, cooperative MPs that see themselves as both Labour and cooperative. And I think that that kind of ethos of of cooperation kind of goes back. You know, it's kind of hardwired really into the ethos of Greater Manchester, going back to the Victorian era. So I think there's there's been a, a long track record of that. And I think one of the things I would say about Greater Manchester, it has always been, you know, certainly in Salford, where I've worked for the last 20 years, it's always been really open to innovation and trying things differently and bringing new ideas in and, and also re, re- resurrecting old ideas that have been around for a while. So, uh, you know, I think... The, the, there is there is that kind of that, that kind of history there and, and track record, and more recently with devolution, you know, five years ago we had devolution in Greater Manchester, and there was there was a vision to bring things closer together across the whole of GM, and I think Andy Burnham, you know, has done a great job at kind of kind of moving that to the next level of conversation. He, he put together twelve months ago the social enterprise advisory uh, panel, and we've been advising on policy. Uh, Andy you, you were saying that you're a part of that panel. Uh, yeah, I've been, yeah, I've been uh, honoured to be part of that really great group of thinkers in Greater Manchester, thinking about how we can shape a policy within Greater Manchester that allows Greater Manchester to be the capital of social enterprise in the UK, which is what Andy Burnham wants for Greater Manchester. And, and he's very supportive of that, is he? Very, very supportive, and that's been disseminated through the local authorities. You can see how that's been referenced in, not just in things that you would normally see in things like the public sector uh, policy, but it's all been been referenced in the inclusive economy strategy. So as an economic driver, as well as a a, a reform driver. So Andy Burnham is not just seeing this as being a way of doing public services different. He's also seeing this as a way of actually driving, um, you know, the levelling up agenda, you know, building a more inclusive economy. And I think, that's something that's really interesting to see that it's it's shifting now not just from how you deliver better quality, better value public services, which I think public service mutuals do and social enterprises, but I also think it's now coming into the kind of police economy. How do we bounce back after COVID with a more resilient economy? And one of the things that we have seen across all the public service mutuals is they're really resilient. They're yeah. able to weather a really tough storm, probably the worst storm that we've ever seen in our lifetime. In terms of uh, in terms of the economy and in terms of a, a public health uh, crisis, they've been really resilient and able to respond to that, but also stay afloat and stay and stay solvent, um, you know, in a very choppy kind of landscape. So I think what Andy Burnham is doing is is creating an infrastructure and really investing into into that both politically uh, and and hopefully when we start to bounce back economically as well. Yeah, you make a really strong point there, and I'm certainly very much of the view that levelling up, it's quite a broad idea. So you've got a lot of focus on physical infrastructure, economic levelling up, but actually that's only one side of the coin. Without great public services, the benefit of levelling up will not be, be balanced. It won't be felt in a balanced way you know for everybody to have opportunity and for individuals to be leveled up you've got to have those great public services there as well to enable people to uh, enjoy the opportunity to benefit from leveling up rather than just being left behind so 
organizations like yours working in communities, trying to help people be all they can be and to actually have the opportunity to participate in the economy. You mentioned your nurseries, um, they're enabling people to get back into work. And I know that you, that you provide subsidized places there as well for, for people who really need it. So that's really important. Now, just coming back to the NHS white paper, do you feel that you're engaged in that discussion? Because a lot of social enterprises, mutuals and charities are feeling quite threatened by it. Now, whether that's right or not, I mean, every every organisation has to be wary of its own sustainability. But there is some fear over the aggregation that's going on. So it, it seems that services are going to have to come together. And, and I know a lot of acute trusts are looking around thinking we can hoover up that service, this service. You know, it would be such a shame for anything like that to happen, particularly in Manchester. Definitely. I mean, I think there is a real risk with this. I think, you know, 10 years ago when we kind of met each other and, you know, we're at the start of this journey, politically, um, public service mutuals, both, you know, on all sides of the political kind of spectrum, were really supported. You know, they had a very strong voice within within uh, government. And I think COVID, you know, one of the... The, 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 the kind of issues with COVID has been that the ability for us to have that voice in, in Westminster has probably waned over the last 12 months because we've been very focused on the coal face and not necessarily yeah. speaking to uh, policymakers within Whitehall as much as we would do normally. And I think that there's an issue with that. And I think, I also think, you know, to some extent, Whitehall has been very much focused on Brexit and, and, and uh, on, on COVID and therefore hasn't necessarily had the headspace to think about the impact that some of this policy change is having having on on, on the sector. That's right. Yeah, I think that's right. And it, it was um, it was Francis Maud, who was the minister back in in 2010, who really pushed this. And just a couple of months ago, actually, I heard an interview. There were two interviews, actually. One was with the Times Red Box podcast, and one was with the Institute for Government. And in both of them, he referenced the public service mutual program as one of the things he was really proud of, and he was uh, and he was sorry that it had lost momentum and i think it's a i think it's a pivotal point this for those public service mutuals for those 120 organizations that span out you know over the last decade we've had lots of research that shows that they've been successful in different ways whether or not it's you know professor ham's report on you know on patient kind of safety and and productivity or whether or not it's kind of you know, the financial kind of overview of, of, of public service mutuals or whether or not it's the actual social impact that they've made on the ground. There's lots of different, there's lots of data now that indicates that they've been really successful in, 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 in doing what they said they were going to do 10 years ago. But with this new policy, often old policies get forgotten and new policies come in. And because because of the timing, you know, many of those organisations were on five-year contracts. So they, they've had the first five-year contract. Now they're coming to the end of their second five-year contract. And a lot of the organisation, the organisational um, knowledge and history around what happened ten years ago, maybe not there now because obviously commissions have moved on. You know, senior leaders within within uh, parent bodies have moved on, and it is a really, uh, you know, um, a re- really vulnerable time for, for this sector, for this part. You know, it's one point five billion part set pound set part of the public service uh, sector, and I think. That needs to be kind of mirrored back into into in, into Whitehall. That you know there are some real risks there. You know one of the things that I'm lobbying lobbying for with you know through Social Enterprise UK and locally within Greater Manchester is that 
all public service mutuals should have their contracts reviewed over the next four months before this white paper comes in, so that they should they should be going into the next five years with some certainty over their contracting. In, in a position of strength, yeah. Yeah, in a position of strength, because I think if they go in there on a one plus one basis, you know, these these parts of the public sector that have performed really well outside of the public sector could easily be reabsorbed back in. Uh, and that's not necessarily going to be good for, certainly not going to be good for staff teams, it's not going to be good for uh, for the organisations, but it's certainly not going to be good for local people on the yeah, ground yeah. because all of that will be, be lost because it will be, you know, it'll, it'll come down to other drivers. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to ask you a little bit about what it's really like to work in social adventure. So you obviously have a lot of freedom and flexibility in terms of how you run the organisation. What do you do differently in terms of culture or leadership approaches? So, yeah, I think being a public service mutual, being staff-owned, really does change the relationship between the leadership team and, and the employees. And one of the things that we wanted to do was embrace the public sector ethos of, you know, being there to help people and being, you know, putting people at the core of what we do. But we also wanted to have a really engaged staff team. So we've invested a lot in culture, probably invested as much time looking at our culture as we do in business planning. So we want to be a commercially viable organisation, but we want to be a great place to work for our staff as well. And the one thing that always comes out uh, in any research is that, you know, staff like lots of autonomy, like freedom to act within clear guidelines. And we do a lot of work around allowing people to innovate and do things differently. Uh, So the idea to convert the cafe into a supermarket wasn't my idea. You know, it was the staff on the ground there. They said that they could do right. differently with that space. And we've, you know, resourced that and embraced it and, and supported them to do that. And so, and so just, I mean, that's really fascinating. And I know from conversations we've had over the years that there have been lots of things like that. But just to take that idea as an example, how did the staff who came up with that idea manage to get it done? Like what sort of process, I'll say process inverted commas, <laughs> did, did they go through in order to get that idea enacted? I think I think I think it starts with having having uh, a strong relationship between the leadership team. We've, you know, in a lot of mutual, what I've seen when you walk around, you know, if you speak to Gina at uh, Bevan, you know, if you speak to any of the other uh, public service mutuals, they have they have an open door policy with their senior leadership team, and you'll see you'll often see uh, frontline staff in there sharing ideas in a way that maybe wouldn't have happened within other organisations. The other thing that you see is you see that the leaders that are often at the front line with their staff, you know, they're, they're very much at the coal face, you know, whether or not it's Gina, again, at Bevan, you know, doing the vaccinations with their, with their front line staff, or me working in the, the food bank this afternoon. Um, yeah. I think they, they want to be more actively engaged with the organisation and, and, and less in, you know, less inclined to be locked in an office somewhere. Uh, and I think that that creates a different dialogue with, with, with staff. So, so, I think, so it doesn't actually need a process because you're there with them and you're hearing their ideas and you're saying, right, let's let's do this. That sounds like a really sensible idea. Let's just get on and do it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we look at piloting and, and, and prototyping ideas, so starting small and building things up. So we've done this a lot with different different ideas that we've had. So rather than allowing people to try things but also fail, one of the things in the public sector that, we never really talked about was that we did things that didn't work and we never really talked about them. <laughs> we do a lot of talking about the stuff that we do at social ventures that doesn't work and then learning from it and, and moving so on. Important. Yeah, yeah. So, so important. And that, that is, you know, there, there are huge numbers of incredibly talented people working within the public sector, but 
by and large, I don't think the public sector has cracked that cultural thing about accepting failure, accepting well-intentioned things that don't work out, and the huge value of reflecting on those and learning from it and actually embracing it almost. Yeah, I, I think, and, and I know that your organisation absolutely does that, and, and a lot of the others do. There's definitely big lessons there. No, and I think, you know, we have two golden rules, you know, don't bankrupt us as an organisation and don't kill anyone. They are actually the two rules of innovation that we have. And, you know, it, it, it makes sense if you think about it, but that is one of the problems, and that was one of the frustrations within the public sector that, you know, we often we'd get central government kind of, poly, you know, programmes that we'd have to deliver, and they weren't working. And you'd have to kind of stick to the stick to the scripts and carry on delivering them, even though they weren't working, because that's what we were being dictated to do. And I think as a public service mutual, we've, we've, we've tried to embrace a culture of innovation, and that that's helped us move forward. Yeah. So as a final question, then, what what bit of advice would you give to somebody working in the public sector or or in a social enterprise or a charity who delivers public services and who really wants to make an impact? What would your advice to them be? Uh, I think one of the things would be to come and visit some of the public mutuals that are out there. Actually, you know, we have a really uh, open bunch and, you know, we're we're happy to kind of speak to people and share ideas. So I think if, if you are in the public sector and you're interested in making an impact in a different way and being more radical in the way you think about making an impact, you know, come and speak to some of the people that are in the sector, go visit them. Uh, they, they smell funny. They, you know, look a bit funny. Uh, and they deliver things in a really interesting and innovative way. And I think that that can be quite inspirational to people and give them the confidence to to do this kind of thing. You know, and I think there's still an opportunity, you know, to do this stuff within the public sector. Yeah. Uh, the, the momentum has definitely slowed down over the last 10 years. As far as I'm aware, the policy hasn't changed. There's still an opportunity to do this stuff. And you th- I think with this reform as well, with the reshuffle within the NHS, there may be the opportunity for people, you know, at the front line within within uh, parts of the NHS that are doing things at the moment where they feel they can do them in a different way, there is still the opportunity to do this stuff. And I think uh, if you want to explore it as an idea, there are opportunities to speak to people. Ten years ago when we did it, there wasn't. You know, we we were literally kind of taking a leap of faith. Um, I think now there are a hundred or so organisations out there that you can visit that you've probably got one on your, on your patch. You know, if you look at the map on the mutuals, uh, support program website, you'll probably have one down the road within what, you know, within, you know, driving distance of where you are now. And I think post COVID, you know, there's an opportunity to do that. And I think those relationships can be quite inspirational for public sector leaders. I mean, my, my big hope, and I really appreciate you explaining all of this and really getting into some detail, you know, as the, the NHS white paper is discussed and implemented, there will be a much bigger emphasis on place and on place-based partnerships and the public sector, NHS councils working together with the charities, mutuals, social enterprises. And I just hope that this conversation for public service leaders who are listening opens their their mind to just the importance of having a range of of different types of organisations within a place who will all have different strengths. The public sector is is fantastic. You and I are both big supporters of the public sector. But the areas where the response to COVID has been quickest and most fluid are often areas where there are at least one really strong community-based 
organization that has been able just to get on and do things really quickly. And I just think there's something worth considering there for leaders who are planning what their place looks like Mm -hmm. to just think about the different types of organizations in there. So, Scott, it's been fantastic catching up and I really appreciate you giving up your time. So thank you. Always a pleasure, Andre. Thank you. So as always, when I meet Scott, I've left that conversation with a list of ideas and things that I am going to look into, and I hope you have too. There were a few things from that conversation that I wanted to draw out. One is the new NHS white paper and the possibility that the measures within that white paper may spell the end for smaller specialist organisations like Social Adventures. And it is really important that we don't, as Scott put it, throw the baby out with the bathwater and lose some of these really high performing organisations in the name of integration. The other point I wanted to draw out was Scott's very powerful argument about having an organisational culture which allows experimentation, innovation and indeed failure. Nothing important that has ever been discovered or invented was ever got right the very first time. So it's so important that particularly in public services, we have that culture which encourages experimentation and innovation. So many thanks for listening and don't forget to register on the website or follow the podcast on LinkedIn or Twitter so that you never miss a future episode and indeed can catch up on previous episodes.